but my heart has always been the same to every man that sits in my chair I will give them the best I will serve them the best that I can in the time that they have with me and that's either giving them a good haircut or just making them feel seen and heard or acknowledged This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora, welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, Andy Dixon. To those of you who are here for the first time, know my, you are so welcome. And to those who have been with me for a while, uh, thank you for your ongoing support. We've just finished Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, aka Māori Language Week. Uh, it's also one year since my conversation with the amazing Cat Poi came out, titled Courageous Conversations About Race, which is still one of my most listened to episodes. If you haven't heard it, definitely go check it out. That wahinetoa is incredible and brings such passion and wisdom to the race conversation. Today we hit the third of a Tangata Moana lineup that started in episode 34 with Dietrich Sorkai and continued last time with Courtney Manu. Both had such powerful things to say, so if you haven't listened to them, it's definitely worth your time. Although, of course, I would say that about all of my guests. Today we hear from Matayu Fafutai Maliatoa Brown, aka Matt Brown, well known for his business My Father's Barbers and for the global movement that he started with his wife Sarah, She Is Not Your Rehab inviting men into a journey of healing and wholeness. Before I get into it, I want to acknowledge here that last week Matt lost a very close friend to cancer, Mark Tuffer. Matt and all those who are grieving, we acknowledge your loss and we stand with you in your grief. Aroha nui ki akwe, Matt. There was a beautiful article on stuff that you can find on my Facebook page that shares about Mark's life. And in many ways, Mark represents much of the conversation that Matt and I have in today's episode, and much of what Matt and Sarah are all about. Matt and Sarah recently released the best-selling book titled She Is Not Your Rehab, unpacking the kaupapa of the movement with insights from Matt's journey and their journey together. I can't recommend this book highly enough. As you'll hear me say in the interview, I gained so much from it for myself, even with a totally different upbringing than Matt. So it was such a privilege to court it all with Matt and to talk about hair art, barbershops, vulnerability, anger, healing, empathy, doing the internal mahi and so much more. This is episode 36 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Matteo Brown. Brown, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Andy. Why don't we just start with Norhia Queer? Who are you, bro? Where are you from? I well, uh, Matt Brown is my name. Or my official name is Mateo Fafite Maliato Brown. Um, and I suppose I went with Matt Brown because my teachers in school found it hard to pronounce my name, and so I've always been known as Matt Brown. Um, I am from. I reside currently in Otutahi in Christchurch, but I was born in South Auckland. Uh, Mangere, to be exact. Uh, my parents immigrated from Samoa uh, in the 60s, and so me and my um, siblings were all raised here, so born and raised here. Now, I first heard of you a number of years ago uh, when you posted some images of some hair art that you'd done, and particularly the one, the first one that I saw was, was a recreation of Da Vinci's The Last Supper that you did on someone's head. Oh, cool. 
how do you get into that sort of thing? Like, is there classes, or did you do you just pick it up, or what, how does that work? Nah, I just um, I seen on YouTube uh, it would have been over a decade ago. I seen some barbers they did like a portrait of Michael Jordan and his five rings on someone's head, and that just fascinated me. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I got into barbering was the the creative and the um, artistic side of it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I attempted my first portrait, uh, which was Tupac, uh, my favorite rapper. And um, I uploaded that onto Facebook. This was going just after 2010. I uploaded that onto Facebook, 2012, sorry. And um, the official Tupac page shared that photo. My, that my went nuts, era, eh? And that went nuts. It went crazy. And all of this attention and fame came my way. And I was like, you know, I thought I was the man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So were there uh precursors to that of a whole lot of guys wandering around with like really ugly portraits on the back of their head for, from you practicing or was it or was it just like you started and, and found that you were actually just pretty good at it? Yeah, no, nah, just I took my time, you know, it's to create um something like that takes, you know, detail and uh precision. Yeah. But um it would take, you know, that that Tupac image took me two hours. But now today I can, you know, I could jam that out in 10 minutes right so well it's um yeah yeah it does it does you know practice makes you better it doesn't make you perfect yeah um i wouldn't say there were heaps of like horrible portraits walking around <laughs> i did yeah. fail once on my daughter though she had the shaved part on the side of her head and she asked me for a portrait of uh beyonce and that horrifically ended up looking like jesus <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, yeah not the same thing no not the same thing <laughs> Oh, awesome. And um, so, I mean, you were you were actually trained as a joiner, like you were working as a joiner before going full-time with your um, barbering. What was it like leaving something that was stable for this dream that you had? It was scary. Well, the thing was, I, I got into joinery. I was going to go to um, college, to university, um, but I decided to take a year break. And so I went and worked with my friends at... Um, this joinery job and I fell in love with it you know I'm naturally an introvert so I just like keeping to myself and you know there's a creative outlet to it you know you could build things and create you know making things um so I just fell in love with it and spent obviously got my trade in there and, and loved it and it was you know a stable job I was getting paid well and then um I just wanted to do more in life and I always wanted to do something that helped with men's mental health um you know especially coming from my background of um, abuse, violence, and a lot of my boys were, you know, joining gangs, coming incarcerated, addicted, you know, addicted, selling, um, and I just wanted to speak into that area, you know, talk to to, to guys with real struggles and real troubles, and um, I was always obviously attracted to barbering or the hairdressing world because of um, the black culture, like hip-hop. Hip-hop was uh, something that really resonated with me as a kid, and it you know, almost like saved my life, music, um, the culture of hip hop. And um, yeah, I was attracted to these, you know, rappers and famous singers on TV who had these cool as hairstyles. And I wanted to, um, I suppose, recreate those same hairstyles in my neighborhood. And yeah, as I, it was scary leaving joinery, but I wanted to, I wanted to, um, I knew I wanted to do something with men. And so I started cutting up my boys in my neighborhood just in my, in my backyard before I had a little garden tin shed. And um, it was in these, in these conversations that 
I started having with these men. And obviously guys said, you know, I've, I was giving a good haircut, but they were coming back for more than just a haircut. And so that's when I decided to to leave my joinery job, my trade, and um, commit to becoming a full-time barber. Mm. And it was scary. It was scary. But, um, yeah, I suppose word of mouth has helped my business grow. You know, one, you do a good haircut, that guy's going to tell three other people. Yeah. Um, you do a horrible haircut, you know, he's going to tell 20 people, don't go to that guy. Yeah. And so I was just lucky. I had the time to hone my craft in my backyard, which eventually eventuated to a tin shed. Um, and people just, I suppose, spread the news. There's a barber cutting in the hood yeah. and it's got a tin shed and that's how the business grew, really. And like you say, that it's been more than about haircutting right from the start. Yes. And yeah. and that's something that's really obvious when you go to your barber shop now is that, you know, the way that, that all your barbers connect with one another and with the clients, it's obvious that you've put that spin in for them as well, that, that uh, you haven't just brought them on board to show them how to do hair. You're helping them to be, be that person as well that can chat to men and, you know, be in that space. Yeah, definitely. Um, what's that been like, sort of taking on those apprentices of um, getting these other guys doing what you love to do? It's um, I, it's something I really enjoy is um, teaching and helping the next generation to um, to have these conversations because our mental health system is so is struggling at the moment. And if we, if we, you know, whatever job you're in or business or um, environment you're in, if you can, if you can hold a space or create an environment where people can actually talk and open up, then um, I, I just think more power to you. And I, and the heart of our business has has always been connection. You yeah. know, you look at any business, it's how do you connect with, um, you know, the people, the community, yeah. the buyers. And so I pride myself in having conversations, like asking the right questions, because people, people, so many people out there, especially men, are, are struggling silently, mm-hmm. and they want to talk to someone, but it's hard because if you open up about certain topics, or you know, no one wants to talk about shame, or how do you yeah. even begin that conversation with, um, you know, having experienced shame in your childhood or grief or disappointment? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I pride myself in. in the ability to have these conversations and teaching mm. barbers. People people come to the barber shop wanting to learn how to cut hair, but they eventually learn, oh, this is more than just cutting hair. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're 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 talking to people and holding space for guys that actually open up about things that they don't really talk about. And you've also used it as a chance to to give guys a go who other people wouldn't give the time of day, haven't you? You know, there's there's guys that have experienced prison that become barbers in your barber shop. Yes, I always just think um, I never hire people on talent. I I prefer character. I think um, I can teach anyone how to cut hair. Um, it's having the right attitude and the um, you know being resilient and showing up to work on time. Like those are the things that I, I'm more interested in teaching and mm. helping nurture. And so, yeah, some of these guys that um, whom society does not give a second chance to or, or deem as the worst in our society. Um, I've always had a thing for the underdog, <laughs> um, helping people out that uh, people just deem not worth it. And so, yeah, the guys that have come out of prison and I've given jobs to um, have remained outside of prison, have, have remained on, on this side of the wire, yeah, which cool. is also an, uh, an awesome thing to do. To And the reason why we do it is because a lot of these men who do 
come from um, prison, you know, they have children waiting for yeah. them at home. And, you know, and I was that kid myself that would go and visit my father in prison and, you know, hoping every time the dad came out of prison, he would be better. He would come out as a better man. Um, you know, unfortunately, that wasn't always the case for us, which led us, you know, staying in every woman's refuge home here in Christchurch. Um, and so part of it is redeeming my, my story, my childhood, that these kids who are waiting for their parents to come out of prison, um, that they're more equipped with the right tools and the right insights to be more present for their children, yeah. more loving to their partners, and just, you know, making something better for themselves and changing that narrative. And so, yeah, always keen to give someone a chance if they're willing and if yeah. they're attituding and they want to grow. Um, not so much they so egotistical and they want to be the best barber and the best, you know, mm. cutting hair, like awesome, but I more want to focus on people's character. Yeah. In your book, you tell a story about a guy who came and, and talked to you and by the end of the conversation, you found out that actually he was coming to get his hair done for his funeral. And because of the conversation you had with him, he, he decided it was worth living. Mm. Those moments where you find that point of connection must be really rewarding for what it was that you hoped to do when you set out. It's, a, it's always a, it's, it's beautiful. It's a, always a reminder of why I started, you know, why I left my joinery job and, and took a chance and dived into barbering. And, you know, I wasn't, I didn't go to school and learn to, you know, I learned through YouTube videos and then I learned from watching other barbers in their barber shops. And so, but my heart has always been the same to every man that sits in my chair, I will give them the best. I will serve them the best mm -hmm. that I can in the time that they have with me. And that's either giving them a good haircut or just making them feel seen and heard or yeah. acknowledged. And I think that's, we live in a society that's so fast, you know, people judge your connection on how fast your Wi-Fi is, yeah. you know, but um, the rat race is so fast and how many of us actually get a chance to sit down and just, just talk, mm -hmm. talk to another person. And, and that's one thing why I refuse to have TVs in my barbershop or games because I just want to get back to that conversation, kanohiki to kanohi, face to face, real connection. If people want to watch sports and talk about sports, like go to the pub. You know, there's a pub right across our barber shop, but in this barber shop, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about hard things, um, not necessarily all the time. I don't think. I think there's a bit over <laughs> the yeah. extra if you're always talking about hard things. But you know, it, the opportunities there. Yeah. If someone is struggling with their mental health, like come and talk to your barber. You know, we're cheaper than a therapist. Mm. A lot of our people can't afford therapists. You know, for a guy who's struggling with his mental health, you know, a hundred hundred and twenty dollars to see a therapist or a hundred and twenty dollars to pay the bills, buy groceries to feed my family. Yeah. They're going to choose that over going to see a therapist. And so I don't say we don't replace therapy, you know, we're, but I think we're a first step mm -hmm. in the right direction. You know, we're cheaper and sometimes we will be the best that some of these guys will want to go to. You know? mm -hmm. So, Is half of it just being a good listener? Yep, that's it. Being a good listener. I always say that the secret to connection is actually just listening. Never ever is it about you giving the right answer or you saying the right things trying to fix things it's really just listening and holding that space but the thing is we feel so awkward if we can't help you know and then we start making it about ourselves like oh i feel useless i'm not a good friend i'm not a good person because i didn't give this guy good advice but the best thing we can always do is actually just listen and show empathy yeah 
just over two years ago now, you spoke at TEDx in Christchurch, and that kind of birthed this whole movement that you've called She Is Not Your Rehab. What's this last two years been like for you? Man, it's been a wild ride. It's been humbling to see the conversation, just tackling hard topics like shame and vulnerability um, amongst the culture of men, but then also family harm, you know, talking about subjects that are often labelled taboo. It's been it's been awesome because people are starting, people are having these hard conversations, not just in our barber shop, but you know, with each other in relationships. And a lot of the stuff that we talk about with our co-papa, our movement is um, leaning into the discomfort, having conversations that we've never had or encouraged, or is not you know your yeah. typical um, conversations. Yeah. And so it's been awesome just how it's reached worldwide now. You know, a lot of yeah. people have asked me to come speak, obviously because of COVID, I can't travel. Um, we're stuck here in New Zealand, so I've done a lot of Zooms, um, international conferences, and just talking. And I just, I never thought that I would be in this position, you know, coming from a garden tin shed, and all, all my, my heart was always just to hold space for men and have these conversations, and now it's turned into this global movement. It's um, very, very humbling. Do you still get to do the barbershop? Uh, it's taking me out of the barbershop, to be honest. So I hardly see my clients these days. Um, so I don't really cut new people. Um, I've got my regular clients, but all my regular clients understand I'm a busy man. And, yep. you know, if I have to cancel on them because I've got something on, they, they feel sad, but yeah. they understand. So, yeah. Um, your own life has been the catalyst for a lot of this passion to help others. Um, your childhood was traumatic, to say the least. At what point did you decide that sharing your own story was something that was going to be beneficial for others? I've been sharing my story... Um, since I was 15. I left home at 15. And I started in school first. I started, um, you know, in school you do speeches. Mm. And I remember doing my doing my speech and I, I won. Um, I came first, but it, I, I, all I shared was my story of um, overcoming domestic violence. Wow. And the amount of peers that came up to me at school and, and talked about they were going through the same thing at home. Wow. They were experiencing the same thing. Was um, that was probably my first? Um, that kind of that was probably the first time it put light onto what sharing my story can do. Um, and these were kids that you know didn't look like me. You know, growing up in Christchurch, predominantly it's predominantly Pakia, you know, European white people. And so these guys, I'm thinking they had it all together at school, and you know they had the life, and I'm at home. My normality is you know hidings and abuse and violence when kids came up to me and were telling me that they were experiencing the same thing it just it blew my mind wow. and so I've always um worn my heart on my sleeve and, and told my story and I, I share my story I think I can I know I can share my story because I know I share my story openly because I know I'm loved yeah. I know who's in my corner I know who's in, who's sitting in my support section but I had to do that I had to do that work you know so I left home at 15 started sharing my story and you know when I left home at 15 the, the person that was sitting in my support section was myself I had to show up for myself and, and show compassion and empathy and I just yeah it's it's been an amazing um, journey and I know that me being vulnerable and sharing my story gives other people permission to share their stories and be vulnerable yeah um, and so it's the power I've always believed indigenous people have always healed 
through storytelling, you know, through stories. That's how we heal. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm um, speaking of healing, you know, when I first heard of She Is Not Your Rehab, uh, my immediate assumption was that it was purely about stopping physical violence. And of course, that's a part of it. Yeah. But as I've understood more of it, and as I've read your book about it, actually you were inviting men into a journey of healing, aren't you? Yes. You say in your book, healing is not what happens to you. Healing is what happens inside you as a result of what love does to you. Mm. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? What does that mean for you? Well, you know, I mean, I took that, I, I took that and um, put my own spin on it from um, the addiction specialist guru who I love and adore. Um, he's from Canada, Jewish man from Canada, um, Gaba Mate. He, he says trauma isn't what happens to you, but what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. And so, um, yeah, I just put my spin on that healing, obviously, happens to you from what love does to you and um i just feel we need to be i was there was a time in my life where with all my trauma and my childhood experiences of violence and sexual harm and physical violence all of that stuff my surviving mechanism was to lie i i, I lied i i created many facades that i hid behind built many walls and it took one person, my wife, who seen past all this, acknowledged my my upbringing, but had was very clear in her boundaries of what love and having a relationship with her looked like. And but it was just her seeing it, seeing and acknowledging me, mm-hmm. um, which really shattered those walls. And and that what how that looked like was, I was sitting one time on the computer doing some work and she came and sat next to me and she asked me a simple question, you know, why do you lie? And of course my, my typical response was the answer with a lie. So I don't lie. What are you on about? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Still typing away. And she just sat there gently, you know, wasn't trying to um, invade my space, but was just curious. Why do you lie? And then, um, yeah, obviously I lied saying I don't lie. And then she um, started listing out, you know, um, scenarios that had that I obviously lied, mm. and um, I just sat there and then started crying. Yeah. And I said, um, "Why are you my friend?" She goes, "I love you, but you don't have to lie to me. You know, I love you beyond the lying. You don't have to um, keep surviving with me. Now you can live." Mm. You know? And it was it was that 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 one question, an empowering question of why do you lie, changed my changed my life really and it was um that was healing it was love that's what love does to you it heals yeah and hearing you talking before like when you were 15 you know some of that was learning to love yourself too wasn't it that definitely that actually you know before sarah came along you know you you had to step up and go actually i'm going to choose to love myself yep uh, there's a quote from Isaac Rowe, who's a anger management specialist. He says, I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her real name was grief. Mm. And um, you say similar things in your book. You say uh, that anger goes by other names. Do you want to, again, just tell us a little bit about how you came to that and what does that mean for you and for the guys that you encounter? Yeah, I definitely, um, I love that quote. I definitely believe... Um, Anger masquerades itself, um, hiding a lot of other emotions that society hasn't really encouraged men to feel. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of men are disappointed. A lot of men, like around this time during COVID and the lockdown, a lot of people, you know, are stressed. Um, you know, financials, um, work, will they have a job after this? You know, how can they pay the bills? And so that then opens us up to feeling inadequate, you know, not good enough. And all these emotions, you know, it may trigger um, memories of the past. You know, my dad didn't show up to my rugby game. So, you know, now COVID, I've lost, you know, I'm not working. I can't provide for my family. I'm no good. You know, I'm a failure. And that leads to shame, you know. So there's so many feelings that we feel, um, but anger just seems like a more powerful expression of outlet for us you know it's we can feel it we can use it to you know action what we want to do but sometimes we, we struggle to sit there with these other feelings of um yeah feeling inadequate feeling disappointed and underneath all that is grief i believe um the emotion sitting behind anger majority of the time is grief right if you if you track everything down yeah i'm disappointed i failed you, you keep Going down the layers, grief sits right at the bottom. Um, and I've, I've just, for myself, I've had to sit there and, and do this work with myself. You know, what is it I'm feeling? If my wife says no to me, why do I feel disappointed? You know, why am I reacting instead of responding over her saying no? And, that, and heaps of our arguments come from, you know, stupid little things like, you know, what direction we're going to go home? Um, and I say, this way's faster. You know, going left is faster, love. And she's like, no, I want to go right. And just her saying no to me then, you know, sparks off an argument. Um, I clearly know that, you know, going left is going to be faster than the way home. She's like, you know, what, by a minute, but I want to go right. And so it's in the know that you then start asking yourself questions. Why am I, re- why am I reacting like this? You know, is yeah. it because I don't like being told no? Or someone said no to me in the past or in, as a child and it hurt, you know? Mm. Or I, I feel... Um, not acknowledged or respected because uh, my timing's my timing's you know on point. I know the fastest way home, so you don't believe me. Yeah, you know, there's so many things here we can discover and 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 have to navigate through. And so that's what I mean in the book when we're talking about um, anger. You know, sits at the top and and hides us. I believe anger is a secondary emotion. There's a whole um, host of emotions sitting underneath anger. What have you seen, like when you've been working with guys and this kind of discussion has come up about anger, about what else is lying behind it, has that been something that that guys get? Uh, yes. When you when you communicate it, what comes from the heart connects to the heart. And yeah. so I always try and simplify things because sometimes with, you're communicating not with a grown man in front of me, especially the guys in my chair. I I realize that I'm not talk- sometimes I'm not talking to a, a 40 year old man. I'm talking to the 10 year old boy who, who never knew how to regulate um, an, a situation that he went through. And, and it's trying to help them and then reinterpret, reinterpret that feeling um, of disappointment or grief to them. You know, it, it wasn't your fault. Um, mum and dad were trying their best or mum and dad were moving from house to house because they were struggling or, mm. you know, there's so many reasons why, um, things happen to us and so it's just help, helping people to reinterpret that and um, then reparent themselves you know yeah. or you help reparent them you know something uh, me and my wife have you know I love me and my wife love each other and so we're always on that journey of reparenting each other you know we had parents who 
my my parents, you know, they they lived on um, reaction mode instead of responding. And so we've had to, me and my wife have had to reparent, you know, uh, my wife's reparented me and how I raised my kids, you know. Let's mm. not, let's be gentle with our kids. You don't have to um, yell at them all the time just because he broke a jar. Yeah. You know, it was an accident. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, something you've mentioned a bunch of times already today is shame. Uh, and you say at one point in the book that it wasn't the pain from the physical abuse that was destroying you. It was the intense shame that you were feeling. How do you see the same story playing out in the lives of the men in your chair? It's the thing for me, it's, 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 you know, trauma, trauma has multiple manifestations. Um, and as I said before, you know, the definition I love the most is from Gaba Mate. Trauma isn't what happens to you, but what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. And so these feelings just linger there, um, harbor in, in our body, um, and we carry it with us until our adulthood. If you've never learned how to regulate them um, or navigate your way around them, and most of us kids don't, and so you see it manifest, um, this trauma can manifest in countless ways, you know, addiction, self-medication, violence, and one of the most crippling ones is shame. A lot of people carry shame, and and so I believe, you know, when you're facing someone who is traumatized, um, in my experience, you know, there are various factors that can actually make a difference. And one of the most important ones I have encountered for myself is empathy. Mm. You know, empathy has made a difference in my life and in the lives of people I've had the privilege of knowing and walking alongside, walked mm. alongside. You know, someone with empathy um, knows how to listen, to hear. Mm. You know, how to see through all the facades, the masks, and the pain, and be with you without judgment. Um, as I was saying about my wife when she told me, "You know, why do you lie?" Mm. It seems it seems so simple, but yet so overlooked. Because, but I truly believe, you know, empathy is is so transformative. Mm. You know, this is the ability to understand and listen without a without a rolled out recipe to do list. Mm. Because I think when people are just trying to survive, it's difficult to even consider transformation. You know, think about that in your own life when your back is against the wall um, and you felt at rock bottom with no options. You aren't thinking about transformation, but survival. And so childhood trauma mixed with economic pressures, class systems, prejudice and systemic racism, hard relationships all play a part as an adult trying to navigate through that trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And something I found reading the book, um, I guess I, I expected to kind of be reading it, thinking about how this book would benefit other people because I didn't grow up in a, in a house where there was abuse. Um, you know, I grew up in a very stable home and a very loving home. And yet I found myself resonating with all your discussions around trauma, around shame because actually I've had trauma and shame as well. It's just in different ways. Yes. Um, you know, I I um, am still battling with some, some mental health challenges that come from experiencing trauma as a kid. And mm. it, it took me 30 years from the trauma to realize that's what it was that was, that was um, behind a lot of the way that I did some, certain things and things that had affected our marriage, you know, a bunch mm. of those things. So... Um, and, and of course, wrapped up, like you say, around that trauma is, is often shame. 
you know, I mean, throw, throw in religion as well. Um, you know, that, that can bring a lot of shame too, because yep. you're not the, the good, perfect boy that, you know, you're supposed to be, you're, you're doing things that you know are quote unquote wrong. Um, and yeah, I think one of the, the best changes in my life is starting to see things less about right and wrong and seeing them more as about, um, healthy versus unhealthy. And that's what I, I picked up a lot in your book was not, you weren't berating guys for, for doing things that were wrong as much as you were inviting them in, into a space that was more healthy, um, which, yeah, just spoke volumes to me. Mm, thank you, bro. You, uh, you celebrated your wedding anniversary yesterday, um, so yes. congratulations on that. And lockdown. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, uh, and sorry that you aren't currently overseas celebrating that like you were supposed to be. But one bit that really touched me in your book, you said when you were sort of first considering letting Sarah deep into your life, you said, if I invited her into my heart to walk places no one else had ever been invited into, she was someone who would take her shoes off at the door and tread carefully. She seems like a pretty awesome person to have in your corner. She is. She's the love of my life. She's an amazing girl. I, I get emotional when I think of um, just who she is to me. Um, she, she's a remarkable human and um, so grateful, so thrilled that... Um, I get to do life with my best friend. Oh, get emotional about <laughs> far out. I think one of one of the things I loved about the way that you portray her in your book is that you don't put her up as some perfect wife who saved you. Uh, and in fact, the opposite of that, you put her as someone who's in your corner cheering you on to do the work yourself. Yeah. She is a woman. She is a boundaried woman. She's a yeah. definition of boundaries. Like, I ain't doing this shit for you. You go, you go, you know, I love you. I'm here cheering you on. Happy to walk alongside you. But you need to check your ass into therapy or talk to someone about your your um, struggles because that's not mine to carry. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I've always loved that about her. She, She's not my rehab, but she's my home. Yeah. She's she's safe. You know, I can, I can just be and talk about whatever... I'm feeling or whatever I'm struggling with and I'm not shamed or judged. Um, she's there supporting me, but she's not doing, she's not going to do the work for me. You know, she can't, it's, um, it's not sustainable for either of us. And so, yeah, very grateful, very grateful to my wife. Awesome. And, um, and just to finish off, um, what is it that brings you hope? What brings me hope? Um, a lot of things bring me hope. You know, when you, when you're in this work, when you're in this sector of um, family violence and you're dealing with people who are who are traumatized and often not in the conversation of um, you know just in the conversation in general, um, men who who struggle silently, what gives me hope is when they change the narrative, when they show up um, for themselves in a way of showing up for their kids. Um, so many things give me hope. Seeing mm -hmm seeing men um, now in their kids' lives, um, not necessarily in their um, the kids' mothers' lives, but men who are actually making effort and, and working and staying away from um, prison. Uh, and not just men who have um, been in prison, but guys who are just now, you know, being present with their kids. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I've, so beautiful when you receive messages from women you know, thanking me and I get bottles of wine at the barber shop um, from, from partners saying, you know, my husband's a, a you know, he's, he's present now. He's there 
we can have conversations. Those things give me hope. Um, and so, yeah, I, I lean into that. Me and my wife always say, you know, the seeds that we, we plant today, we may never eat the fruit from, and we won't. But we, we do it because we believe our children's children will. You know, we have to dream for a, a violence-free Aotearoa, a violence-free world, because um, that's what we're all working towards, mm. you know? And so, yeah. Awesome. What does the future hold for Matteo Brown? The future? Oh, man, we have so many. We've got so much work. We're, we're currently, we, we've been currently working on an online program for men um, with healing. And so it's just, we just want healing to be accessible. Why does it have to cost so much money for people to heal? Mm. You know, at the end of the day, our children are suffering, you know, mm. if, if men can't access healing. And so we've partnered up with the government. We have this idea that we, and we're creating all this content online for men who are struggling with violence, suicide, depression. Mm. Um, and this online program will be accessible for men. Um, mm. And it's going to have real people and real stories um, real tools, insights, and in how people overcome. And I think this this will change the system approach. It's a very holistic approach, um, but it will help our mental health system because it's our mental health system is not doing well. Yeah. Um, that um, we've got a few projects we're working. I'm still I'm still working in the barbering um, industry. Um, I'm gonna, I'm getting back into education, and we're creating an online um, forum for that. Um, my wife is a, a busy, busy person. Mm. She's doing her um, counselling degree. Um, and so we're, we're also working on, well, I can't say too much, but we're working mm. um, with someone international um, creating a dramatised series of the book. That's exciting. So a, a very well-known um, director. So that is exciting. Yeah. Um, but it's all in the works. So, I mean, it, it takes a few years to get that up and running. Yeah. You've got to write the script and all that stuff. But um, there's been a lot of interest since the books come out. And that's just opened up so many doors, so many opportunities. And so we're just trying to, you know, I still want to be a family man. And, you know, my kids my kids and my family are a priority. And so, um, you know, trying to keep the balance. And so, but we people always ask us that question, you know, how do you guys do all everything that you guys are doing? Um but for us, it's simple. Like we, our kids are part of our work. You know, we want to show, we want to show. I'm sick of the narrative that men are useless, men are, you know, are pitiful. The, the they don't show up and all this stuff. And so we want to show a different window. Um, the whole book is a whole different window. Yeah. We want people to see a different window to life, and that it is possible to change the narrative. And so doing this mahi with my wife and, and having our kids with us, when we go in and and hold wānanga and hold conferences for people, I often take my kids and just how I am with my kids you know men are always touched like man like you you're just so gentle you let your kids just yeah. run about I'm like they're kids yeah like you know um but you're so gentle in the way you communicate with your wife like it's so you guys are equal um and so that's what we want to do we want to show people that it what a healthy relationship actually looks like and it's possible to to be everything that you've always yeah. dreamed of and to change the narrative despite your upbringing and your trauma Oh, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for your book. It is a really amazing book. Thank you so much, Barry. To be honest, I had to only read a chapter at a time to start with because it was <laughs> it was pretty full on. But um, but it was something that I needed to read. And I think, uh, like I said, I think 
it will be amazingly helpful for those guys that you had in mind when you were writing it. But I think that this book would be helpful for anyone, to be honest. Thank you, Barry. Just speaking to that that space inside of us that needs to grow, that needs to heal from whatever's happened to us in the past. Mm. So, yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for uh, just being so vulnerable and, and encouraging other men to be vulnerable too. It's a kind of a beautiful ripple that's that's uh, going out from you into others and, and then being replicated. So, um, yeah, thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Thank you, Andy. Very appreciate it. Such a powerful corridor with such a humble guy. It's like empathy just oozes from Matt's bones. There was so much in there to be encouraged by and to be challenged about. And one of the biggest things for me hearing Matt is seeing the power that there is in love. Love of yourself, love of others who stick by you, who ask you the hard questions because they care. Love of those who walk beside you as you do the hard work needed for healing. So Matt, here is a blessing for you. May your barbershops continue to be known as places of conversation, vulnerability and healing. And may all who enter them leave knowing that they are seen and they are heard. May the adventure you are on continue to excite you with possibilities and may you find even more ways to share your kaupapa with the world in ways that make a difference. May your skill with the tools of your trade continue to develop and grow. Yes, clippers and razors, but more importantly, your listening ears and your empathetic heart. And as they do, may you see more and more men stepping into lives of freedom, love and healing. And more and more women finding love in the arms of their partners rather than fear. May your children know how loved they are. And how blessed they are that their dad has done everything in his power to break cycles of violence and abuse. And may your future mokopuna be fruit of the generationally changed narrative that you are leaving as a legacy. May you and Sarah continue to know and be known by one another, forever learning, growing, reparenting, celebrating, cherishing and journeying together. May your relationship flourish as you live in ways that show others that a life of love and companionship is possible, no matter what has happened to them in the past. And may others continue to be blessed as the love in your relationship spills outward to all you encounter. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to Dylan Jones from For Good Media about how he is harnessing his love of film and story to tell stories that need to be heard and make a difference in the world. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātahu matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei E taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Mūro mātou hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei
nei i o te hunga e harana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kauia kia whakawaia E ngāri whakorangia mātou 